do that. Uh, and that is Colossians chapter 3. Again, our theme this year is Raised with Christ. And uh, I love the songs we sang this morning. I love every time that it, uh, we sing about anticipating the return of our Lord. It is, uh, it's, it's just an um, exciting thing to think about. And Colossians chapter 3 says this, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now we know this can be a little difficult because we live on the earth. And so it's hard not to get focused on earthly things. It's hard not to be driven by uh, earthly things. And, and whenever things are going on, similar to what we have going on in our country, uh, it's difficult not to get bogged down looking at things only on the earth. But again, the charge is if we've been raised with Christ then we are to set our mind, we are to look up and, and, and be anticipating not only the Lord's return, but our heavenly home and uh, the promises that he's given to us there. So we don't live for the, the things of this earth. If we do, we're going to be sorely disappointed in the end. Uh, that's why we are charged to store up treasure in heaven and not on this earth. So again, uh, we, we're talking about the end, and I hope that you've been here the last couple Sundays uh, because we've, we've kind of laid some foundational things. We're going to continue to do that this morning as we get closer to talking about some of the fundamental truths about the end times. And so that's where we're going to probably see uh, the thick of our study as well as the future promises that we have or the future hope uh, about the end. And so last week covering those foundational things, we talked about the rapture, which again, just to remind you, the word rapture doesn't a a appear in scripture. Uh, it is a, a derivative from the Latin Vulgate that has been transliterated into English that we have the word rapture from uh, that comes from the word uh, or the, the phrase catching up or catching away or snatching up or snatching away. Uh, <clears throat> and then we talked about the theories that surround the rapture. And I think that's why uh, th this is such an important thing because we could probably go around the room this morning and uh, talk about the rapture and say, hey, what do you think about the rapture? We probably have all kinds of different thoughts and opinions and theories and and, and several people would hold to one and some would hold to another and uh, we could show scriptures and we, we, we showed some of that last week. But uh, again, we'll get into the thick of all of that once we get into the fundamental truths. But um, I'm going to put these on the screen because I had a few people ask me last week, man, I wish we could see it on the screen because as you're reading it, uh, it's difficult to follow along completely. So the first thing that we talked about in the rapture theories were, was the pre-trib rapture theory. And so uh, and on the screen it says this, this view maintains the rapture occurs when Jesus comes secretly to gather the church, and this is prior, this is the pre-trib, prior to the seven-year great tribulation that precedes the return of Christ to the earth. <clears throat> we went into that a little bit more in detail last week. Again, if you weren't here, you can catch that online. Uh, the next one was the mid-tribulation rapture theory. This is similar to the pre-tribulation -trib uh, rapture uh, view, except that it locates the rapture after the first three and a half years at the end point when the Antichrist assumes power. Again, uh, we'll get into some of all these details later on when we get really into the thick of the, the weeds. And uh, we'll, a lot of this hopefully will kind of make sense now that it's a foundational thing. Uh, and then we talked about the pre-wrath rapture theory. This position argues that the rapture will occur toward the end of the tribulation before the outpouring of God's wrath with the bold judgments in Revelation chapter 16. And it's prior to Christ's return to the earth. And then the last one was the post-trib rapture theory. This sees the rapture 
occurring simultaneously to the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So the, these are one and the same event uh, post-trib views it as. And uh, in the, the message last week, we also not, we not only talked about the rapture theories, but we also talked about the millennial positions. We talked about the millennial reign of Christ. And uh, that was found in Revelation chapter 20. I want to read that again, because again, this is, a, this is a foundational thing. It's important. He laid hold of the dragon, verse 2, the, old, the, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Again, this is fundamental. The serpent, the devil, the dragon was, is bound for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. Until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. We're not cover any more, but we just simply see that snapshot of a thousand year, the millennial reign of Christ. And so... I want to put these on the screen as well. We talked about premillennialism, and I hope some of you practice the words like I practice the words, as saying them over and over and over again. Premillennialism places the coming of Christ before this millennium, which they see as the personal reign of Christ on the earth. So it's an actual, literal, personal reign of Jesus Christ on the earth for a thousand years. There's postmillennialism. It places the coming of Christ, there you go, after the millennium, which it conceives as a spiritual presence, the millennium, is simply a spiritual presence of Christ working in and through his church to give a golden age. Basically, it gets better, 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 and then a period of unexampled prosperity in his ministry, and after the, it gets better, then the Lord comes. Not, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> not a lot, nihilism. Uh, all millennialism denies the reality of a thousand-year reign either in the sense of which the premillennialist or the postmillennialist conceives it. And so, these are the rapture theories, the millennial positions, foundational terms and, and thoughts, and, and th these are the things that exist out here. If you were here when uh, we talked about the different uh, positions, you also saw the different names of the theologians throughout the ages that are, many are recognizable, and how they are just spread across the spectrum of uh, the different rapture theories, the different millennial positions. And uh, this morning, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into this and discuss a little bit of the criticism for these millennial positions. So this is, again, foundational. It's probably more educational than, than, than preaching. We're going to get into a little bit of that in, in the end. Um, but let's talk about these positions just for a second, or for a few seconds. All um, millennialism, all right? So this position... Uh, if a, if a six-fold reference to the 1,000 years, which is what we found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7, there were six times that it references a millennial or a 1,000 years. So if a six-fold reference to 1,000 years expresses no period of time, the criticism is, 
What language could be employed to express a period of a thousand years? If it, if it said six times in just a matter of those few verses, then what else could you say to express a thousand years? Right? There's, there's, there's hard, hardly uh, any, any words to describe a thousand years other than a thousand years, especially when it's said six times. The presumption must be that the thousand years means just that. At least until it is shown that the passage cannot bear that meaning and therefore must bear a symbolic meaning. So if, if you don't have any indication that it's given you a, a symbolism about something, then the hermeneutics is that you take it literally. In other words, if you, if you have an analogy, if it's e easily understood that this is symbolic, then you take it as symbolic. But if it's literal then there's no reason to infuse uh, an analogy or a symbolism where the Bible is clearly literal. And so again, this is the criticism against amillennialism. It's just on this point that millennialists allege that amillennialists significantly fail for their suggested symbolical interpretations of Revelation 20, those verses specifically 2 through 7, are far-fetched and unconvincing. That's the criticism against the amillennialist position. The criticism against the post-millennialist position. Post-millennialism posits a great spiritual improvement right across the world before Christ comes. Now, I want you to think about that again. We already read 2 Timothy chapter 3 about what the conditions are and the, uh, the crisis at the end, how the, the condition of mankind is really bad in the end times is what the Lord told us. But postmillennialism says that there's a great spiritual improvement right across the world before Christ comes. Then it's followed by a brief period of fierce satanic activity. And this is where they get into what we, maybe we're experiencing right now um, is a little bit of that. This hardly coincides with the scripture representations concerning the days, of course, that precede Christ's return. Especially, it seems incompatible with the order of events that we see in some of the prophets, like Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. The destruction of the final form of the Gentile government followed by this worldwide dominance of the kingdom of God. This same passage also seems to mitigate against amillennialism since it speaks of a future kingdom upon the earth after the final destruction of a Gentile power. So the post millennial position has a criticism and that it doesn't match up with some of the scriptures that we have about the end time about the end of the gentile rule um, and, and, and such like that then we get into the premillennial position criticism it is unfortunate that in modern times premillennialism uh, has become almost synonymous with dispensationalism now, you hear that word, and some of you in this room say, I know exactly what dispensation is. I know what dispensationalism is. I have no problem following you. But some of you may have heard that word and said, Dispen what? What is dispensation? What is dispensationalism? Uh, well, dispensation, uh, a dispensation is basically a, a period of time or specifically a way in which God works in a period of time and even further with a, a group of people or with mankind and so this this is kind of seen in what some people say well this was the age of the law and this was the age of grace or this is how he dealt with the jews and this is how he deals with the church and so again this is uh, how some dispensationalists view how god works again in in different ways with different people at different times so the 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 the, the, the difficulty is 
Premillennialism has been completely yoked, in modern times, yoked with dispensationalism. In other words, there can't be an in-between for some people. In other words, God can't be working with Israel and the church at the same time, or he can't be doing something uh, still with his law and with grace, even though the law we know is insufficient, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Again, there's, there's, there's no room for that in the absolute dispensationalists. So, while it is true that most dispensationalists are premillennialists, premillennialism does not necessarily lead to dispensationalism. With such ideas as pre-tribulation, secret rapture, and the exclusion of Old Testament believers and future Jewish believers from the covenant blessings and relationship enjoyed by the church. There are valid arguments against such theories, but they do not directly impinge on the doctrine of the millennium. This is not to say that there are no difficulties involved in the doctrine of an actual millennial reign. The allocation of some of the portions of the Old Testament to the millennium for their ultimate fulfillment, which premillennialists hold to be their only valid interpretation, raises a thorny problem of alleged references to animal sacrifices in the millennium. You say, what? <laughs> premillennialists point to certain Old Testament passages that are going to be fulfilled in the millennium and one of these things that we gather is there will be animal sacrifices in the millennium. Animal sacrifices in the millennium? See, premillennialists usually say that sacrifices will be commemorative of Christ's atonement. So those who hold to the premillennialist view typically say, in the millennial reign, there will be animal sacrifices. The temple will be active again, and there will be actual animal sacrifices going on. And the reason why these sacrifices are going to be going on is because they point to, they commemorate, similar to what we do with the Lord's Supper, the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, I want to be honest with you and say I believe this is a weak response to what every premillennialist recognizes as the strongest challenge to his entire position. Premillennialism, or premillennialist, they would be better served by an unconditional acceptance of the plain teaching of the book of Hebrews, that there can be no return to animal sacrifices. Again, this is the criticism against the premillennialist view. Premillennialists should see that Ezekiel 40 through 48 is not millennial. The criticism is that the temple described is clearly more than something merely ideal as the amillennialist and the postmillennialist hold to. Spiritualizing these chapters may produce some sweet devotional applications, but it's a very inadequate method of interpretation. If Ezekiel, with his wealth of minute details about the temple that he describes, does not describe a real building, building, then words mean nothing. However, this building may be real without being millennial. You say, what? You've got a prophet, Ezekiel, who describes a temple that seems to be in the millennial reign, and if it's not an actual temple that doesn't actually have animal sacrifices then how is it an actual temple? 
Internal evidence leads to the conclusion that God was holding out to the Jews of the exile the promise of a glorious temple in Jerusalem on the condition of their repentance and their devotion to him. Now we know history tells us they didn't ultimately fulfill the condition, and so they didn't receive the fulfillment of that promise. And here's a little bit of evidence in the criticism against the premillennialist view, evidence for this view that I just shared. Number one, Ezekiel records that the temple he described was promised to the Jews of the restoration on the condition of repentance. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 15 makes the same stipulation and adds this, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, listen, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. If you. Number two, the temple was to be erected in Ezekiel's lifetime, according to chapter 43, verses 19 through 25. Number three, the sacrifices associated with this temple were purely Old Testament sacrifices, and they plainly refer to the period before Calvary. Number four, circumcision is given as a condition for the entrance into this temple. The New Testament makes it clear that circumcision has no sacramental place in the administration of the covenant of grace after Calvary. A return to circumcision would violate the principle that Paul set forth in Galatians chapter 2, verse 18, when he said, If I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. The fifth thing in this criticism is that Ezekiel speaks of the prince, the prince in the text, who offers animal sacrifices for himself. And for his people. And if the passage is millennial, this prince would have to be Christ. But Christ would offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And he would do it for himself. Number six, Ezekiel's prince has sons to whom he gives gifts. This could not refer to Christ. And number seven, finally, God warned the prince of whom Ezekiel spoke not to steal from the people by oppression. This can have no application to Christ or any other millennial ruler in Jerusalem. Now these are plain considerations that lead us to see Ezekiel's description, again this is the criticism, as that of a real temple that was conditionally promised for the time of the return of the exiles from Babylon. Just as God gave Moses the details of the tabernacle and its sacrifices to encourage the Israelites before their entrance into Canaan. He gave Ezekiel the details of this temple and its sacrifices to encourage them before the restoration of the land in their time. So if Ezekiel's temple was part of God's conditional promises to the returning exiles, the glorious glorious changes in the land described in chapter 47 must be additional aspects of the same promise. He said, man, this is a lot of information, but I want you to understand that these parallels between parts of Revelation and Ezekiel's language do not invalidate this position. Revelation chapter 22 adapts the language of Ezekiel chapter 47, but that does not make Ezekiel, the passage there, millennial only. Old Testament millennial references to animal sacrifices in such passages as Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14 may be taken as prophetic descriptions of actual events in the only language the prophet's contemporaries could understand. 
Thus, the reference to animal sacrifices must be interpreted to mean the spiritual truth signified by those sacrifices, not to the reintroduction of Old Testament sacrificial system in the millennium. Now, again, that's a lot of technical information. That's a lot of just foundational things to help us understand the complexity of the end. But these criticisms, I want to say, aren't particularly or necessarily my criticisms. They are just criticisms that exist on these positions. I simply want to lay them out, similar to like we did last week, showing that the various men in the positions that they've held throughout all of time reveal that men have been wrestling with trying to understand God's revelation of the end for millenniums. There, there are, there are, there's a struggle to, to find out, and I've said before, I, I can live, I said it last week, I can live this life right now that we're living and, and not have all the understanding, and I can still have absolute peace, which I do right now, about what's going to happen. You know why I have absolute peace? You know why I'm not worried, well, is the rapture going to happen here? Or is the rapture going to happen here? Or is the rapture going to happen here? No, we need to know. Is the rapture, oh, well, is the millennium going to do this? You know why I don't have to stress every day about those things? About knowing absolutely, when, when men for all of the church's age have wrestled with and toiled with and, and wrote and, and preached and, and struggled with where they are about the end times. You know why I can live and not have the complete understanding about how it's all exactly going to unfold? Because I know the one who does. I know the one who does. It's all been determined. It's already been set. And I can live every day, and, and I will, studying and seeking out, as, as we saw last, last week, anticipating the return of our Lord. We know there are clear promises. We're going to see those in Scripture eventually. There are fundamental truths that you cannot escape from. But there are things about the end that you and I, I believe, at least at this time, just will not know for sure. But we can have peace in knowing the one who does know it. I don't have to worry or stress about what happens in an election or what didn't happen in an election or how long it takes for them to tabulate votes, as ridiculous as it may be. That's just a little personal input. I can still have peace. Absolute peace. I don't have to worry or stress about what position on the end that someone has in our church or someone doesn't have in our church. Or do you don't have to stress about me standing on one? You say, what? I thought there was a very clear stand. Listen. There is a broad spectrum of positions, as I said, in which men have stood. And I am absolutely comfortable standing with what Scripture says and not what, with, with what man has assigned. That's where I'm at. I, I don't want to be, if you've had serious biblical conversations with me before, there are certain, there, there, there are scriptures that the, the scripture, I will, I will not um, negotiate, I will not compromise, absolutely not. But when it comes to trying to peg me with a position or a man-made uh, delegation or association, I, I just squirm out of that. I don't want to we'll say, yeah, are you a, uh, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminianist? I'm not either. I'm a Christian. Well, are, are you this or that? Well, I, I, I'm trying to follow Christ. That's what I'm trying to do. 
Because this is what we're told by our Lord in Matthew chapter 24. We read it last week and the week before. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, verse 42, be on the alert. What did Jesus tell us about the end? He told us to be ready, to be on alert, because you do not know which day your Lord is coming. There is one of those fundamental truths that we'll get into. That is one of the future promises that we can hold to right now, is that there is going to be a day in which our Lord comes. Praise God. So we are to be on alert because we don't know when that day's coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, the same exact reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible servant whom his master put in charge of his household? to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave, that servant, whom his master finds so doing when he comes. He is coming. Now with all this, we should understand all three approaches to the subject of the millennium have their problems. All three positions. The difficulties of fully understanding the scripture within the system laid down by the pre, the post, or the amillennialism should lead us to hold our views in humility with due love and regard for the equally sincere held views of differing brethren. And what I mean by that is you may work with somebody, you may have somebody in your family, you may have a discussion with somebody in your group, there may be somebody in this church, there may be somebody who you esteem and, and respect, and they say, bless God, this is what is right. Pre-millennialism, post-millennium, all-millennialism. They may do that, but here's what I'm encouraging and suggesting that you and I do. Is that we extend grace and mercy the same that we would want to receive ourselves. That we would hold what we believe in humility. And that we, again, would regard the equal sincerity of our brothers and sisters in Christ with high regard. So I can... I don't have to get in a debate. I don't have to get in an argument. I don't have to tear somebody down and try to make them look bad because they say they're an amillennialist. And so I think that's absolutely insane. I don't have to say that to them. I don't have to say that to a pre- or post-millennialist either. I, I, I can simply say, well, let's just study the Scriptures. Let's continue to seek God's face, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I think that there's a way to hold our views in humility, and I think that's what we should do. We should extend that 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 uh that grace to others now something i said that we would talk more about was other views and uh, again this is getting a little bit more into the weeds this morning i don't want to bore you too much but uh, we have to kind of start bridging from foundational things to fundamental truths we've done a little bit of that this morning uh, some of the stuff that will uh, prayerfully ring a bell as we get into that stuff but there are four main traditions about the interpretive schemes of revelation or the apocalypse. Again, we're going to get into studying Revelation, um, and this is going to be important for you to have as a foundation. So there's four different traditions about how to interpret Revelation. All right, so there's the first view, and that's called the futurist view. You can put that, that's in your notes. The futurist view holds that, with the exception of the first three chapters of Revelation, all the visions, visions in Revelation relate to a period immediately preceding and following the second advent of Christ at the end of the age. Therefore, the seals, trumpets, and bowls refer to events that are still going to happen in the future. 
The beasts that we see in chapter 17 and uh, chapter 13 and chapter 17 are identified with the future Antichrist who will appear at the last moment in world history and will be defeated by Christ at a second coming to judge the world and establish his earthly millennial kingdom. Now, I'm not going to get into all the variations of that, but there's variations of this view that were even held by the earliest expositors of Scripture. Irenaeus, we mentioned him recently, and others. The futurist approach to the book has enjoyed several different revivals throughout the church age, and especially since the 19th century. It's the view that's held by most evangelicals today, is that the, the, the Scriptures in Revelation refer to the future for the most part. The second view is the historic view, the historicist view. As the word implies, this view centers on history and its continuity as seen in Revelation. It centers on history and its continuity as seen in Revelation, so how it connects with history. Um, we're not going to get too far into that, but the various schemes that developed uh, as this method was applied to history, one element became common in all of this, and that was the Antichrist and Babylon were connected to Rome and the papacy. Later, in th this view, Luther, Martin Luther, and John Calvin and other reformers came to adopt this view. That this approach does not enjoy much favor today is largely because of the lack of consensus as to the historical identifications that it entails. The third view is the preterist view. The preterist view. So again, all of these are approaches to Revelation, all these are approaches or views on uh, end time prophecy and interpreting these scriptures. According to this view, Revelation describes what was happening in the time of the author. So as John was exiled on the Isle, uh, the Isle of Patmos, and as he was getting this revelation, uh, the, the preterist view believes that these things were happening in his lifetime. It's, it's a contemporary and eminent historical document dealing with the evil Roman Empire specifically. So the main contents of chapters 4 through 22 are viewed as describing events wholly limited to John's time. This approach identifies the book with the Jewish apocalyptic method of producing tracts for the times to encourage faithfulness during intense persecution. One version of this view <clears throat> sees the fall of the great Babylon as God's judgment on an apostate Israel in the fall of Jerusalem, and here you go, in 70 A.D. So when you, you approach the scriptures like these, then you, you have to conclude about certain things. Um, a second type of preterist interpretation sees the fall of Great Babylon as the fall of the Roman Empire. It also views the two beasts of chapter 13 as the imperial Rome and the imperial priesthood. Now, this was held by a majority of contemporary New Testament scholars of various theological persuasions for a long time, and um, it, it didn't even appear as a system, actually, until 1614. And so, again, these are different takes, and then the, fin the final take is this, the idealist, symbolical view of interpretation. This method of interpreting Revelation sees the book as being basically poetic, symbolic and spiritual in nature 
Indeed, it's, it's sometimes called the spiritualist view, not, of course, in reference to the cult of spiritualism, but because it spiritualizes everything in the book. Everything in Revelation gets spiritualized. Thus, Revelation does not predict any specific historical events at all. On the contrary, it sets forth timeless truths concerning the battle between good and evil, which continues throughout the church age. I'll share all these for a reason. Once again, men, I didn't name all the names who held to or who started or were associated with some of these views, but theologians have struggled since the time of Scripture to fully grasp what the end looks like, our place in God's timeline, and then how that affects our lives on earth as Christ ambassadors. And so here is the challenge this morning. Here is the, the preaching, if you will, in light of all of this information. Again, all just maybe, you, we, we kind of went to a little bit of a, a school this morning, uh, just learning some of these foundational things because it affects what we're going to learn when we study in depth the scriptures. As I close, there's three, the, 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 a couple things real quick that I want to look at. The first thing is this. Number one, stay spiritually alert. In light of, you say, man, I am, I am, I wasn't, maybe, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I, I could ask you to raise your hand and say, how many people were intimidated when you start thinking about studying the end times, right? Because it's such an overwhelming thought for so many people. So many people are like, I just, I, I hear one thing and I hear another and then I read something and I hear something and then somebody says something and I get so confused and I'm so, and then we're going through this study now and you're reading all these different views on uh, and all these different men who have had different positions throughout all the church age and I'm just overwhelmed by all this information. I would just want to make it very, very simple for us as followers of Christ and as a church. The first charge in, in all of this should be to stay spiritually alert. Stay alert spiritually. Don't get bogged down in earthly things. Don't get bogged down in, in, in menial and temporal things. Stay spiritually alert, knowing that our Lord is coming, knowing that the end is near, knowing that he's given us what we need so that we can effectively live for him on this earth. Stay spiritually alert. And if you find yourself slumbering spiritually, I'm not reading my Bible, I'm not praying, I'm not faithful to church, I'm not telling anybody about Jesus, I, I'm, not, I'm not serving, I'm not using my gifts, I'm, I'm just kind of... Getting up in the morning, going to school, going to my job, living my life, doing all the things on this earth, and I am completely out of tune spiritually. Now, I want to challenge you this morning. Come to this altar and rededicate, repent, whatever you've got to do. But now is the time for us to stay spiritually alert. Colossians 3, we read it already, our, our theme verse. If you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, not things on the earth. Matthew 24, 42, we read it. Therefore, be on the alert. We don't know when our Lord is coming. And then the second thing is this. Stay sincerely devoted to Christ. And you say, well, that, that's very similar. And yes, I, I want to read this because this is how we're going to close. 2 Peter chapter 3 is such a vital scripture. It says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring, you, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, 
Listen, he says, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? I thought you said Jesus was coming back. There's going to be people mocking this. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. It's just a, a new difficulty, a new problem. We're not getting any closer to Jesus' return than we, than we have been before. The mockers will say that. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with, with water. But by his word, the present heavens, right now, are being reserved for fire. They're kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What was the charge? Stay sincerely devoted to Christ. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, all, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, the end, in which, are some, in which are some things hard to understand. Did you hear what the apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just wrote? That some of the things about the end are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, what does he say? Again, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. <laughs> I love I cannot wait for that day of eternity. Can't wait to cross over from the temporal to the eternal. But we see in these scriptures, we know no matter how, how tall the weeds are, no matter how far we get off in the weeds, say, man, I, I am, I'm not more encouraged about the end. I'm more, I'm more discouraged because there's so much information. People seem to be so divided. No, no, don't take that from that. Just know that it's always been difficult to understand from the Apostle Peter, who wrote, some of these things are hard to understand, to right now. There are things that are just difficult for us to grasp in these earthly bodies. But it doesn't change the fact that you and I should stay spiritually awake, and we should stay sincerely devoted to Christ. 
And I want to challenge you and charge you with that this morning. We're going to get off in, in, into many scriptures in this study. We're going to be going through, again, all of what Jesus taught in Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to be going through uh, some of the Old Testament prophets. We're going to be in Revelation. We're going to see all the fundamental truths, but you'll see that it doesn't change that we should stay on the alert and stay sincerely devoted to Christ. I want to challenge you this morning with this. If you're here and you're not positive that you're going to be a part of his kingdom when he, was returned, when he returns. If you're here and you're not positive where you're going to spend eternity. And I'm begging you not to leave this place until you have a conversation. There's people down here on the front row that you can come during the invitation and say, man, I, I want to know for sure where I'm going to spend eternity. And so I don't want to go up front. I, grab me in the back before you leave, but please don't leave here with questions about eternity. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross, as we said a while ago. He rose again the third day so that all who would believe in him would have eternal life. But I don't want anybody to leave here with a false impression that they're going to heaven because they say they believe in Jesus. Because it's not believing in Jesus like you believe in the Santa Claus. Believing in Jesus is an absolute surrender of your life to the point that you become a new creation. You are born again. A new life in Christ. You look different from the world. You're not perfect or sinless, but you look different and you live different. And if you're here and that's not settled, I, I beg you, please don't leave without settling that. For Christians, let's make sure that we are staying alert and we're sincerely devoted to Christ. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for all you do in our lives. And we do thank you for your, your word that we get to walk through and talk through. And Lord, I know that this morning just a lot of information on different positions and, and I, I thank you for allowing us to do that because it shows that with man's efforts, we fall so short. When in your word, while there are things that are too difficult for us to understand, you tell us in your word that your ways are far above our ways, that your thoughts are far above our thoughts. And so there's going to be things that we're limited to understanding in, this, in these temporal bodies with these earthly minds. And I pray that we would grab hold of your truth and we would stay on the alert. God, that no matter when you return, it doesn't change how we live our lives. God, that we wouldn't be more devoted to this world than we are to your kingdom. And I know that we probably have some people in here that struggle with devoting more to the world than to you. I think that we probably all do in some degree. And so Lord, I pray that we would wake up, that we wouldn't be spiritually slumbering, that we would stay sincerely devoted to you, that there would be nothing in this world that rivals, rivals our devotion to you. Help us be those faithful servants found so doing uh, when you return. Lord, just bless now as we respond. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand as he sings, I want to invite you to come.